0: This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Moamir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. Hurry, is it, so you it. This is Van Color. <laughs> Today on This is Van Culler, I'm joined by a lifelong grassroots activist and political organizer for peace, social justice, and media democracy in Vancouver. He believes that Vancouver needs more renters on city council, and ultimately, this city is long overdue for a political revolution. He is a city council candidate for the Coalition of Progressive Electors, or COPE, which is the city of Vancouver's longest-standing progressive political party is a founding member of the Vancouver Tenants Union, and he's the author of The Lesser Evil and Woman Among Warlords, co-authored with Afghanistan's Malalai Joya. He is Derek O'Keefe. Derek, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Um, I must note that while we're recording, <clears throat> the city of Vancouver is currently drawing names uh, for ballot placement for the election on uh, October 20th. So it, I, I'm honored that you would miss that to be here. <laughs> it's a
1: big, it's a big uh, event. We were joking about it with some other candidates at an event this morning. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd just say it doesn't matter where O'Keefe is on the ballot. People are going to be able to, to identify it and, and find it. I'm just happy no one else with the same last name right. is running.
0: That's where it gets complicated. Yeah. That's yeah. the problem. That's the old James Green, Jim
1: Green story from way back. Right. Uh, but it looks like
0: there was none of those, uh, no hijinks. Uh, Not or, that I can think of. Yeah. Um I but mean we'll see how it goes. Do, do you have a number in mind that you think you're going to be? Like is there maybe something intuitive that you're some out of 71 where would I like to be? Yeah. 18.
1: Maybe. 18? 18 for 2018. Okay. Th- there I was like it. someone suggesting it should be numbered. Um I heard place. that. But then, you know, 13 for how do you deal with those numbers that are unlucky right. for for certain uh certain cultures uh, you probably can't go there.
0: <laughs> we we had this discussion with Sarah Blythe and I was saying that you know when you have this many candidates it actually becomes quite difficult because say if you're going to vote for Derek O'Keefe, okay, I'm looking for the Os. But now mm-hmm. I really have to it's it, I have to search for for your name. Yeah, it's right? a word it's a word search. <laughs> or you can search for Cope. Or but you, even that's there true. there's that's three out of 71 you're
1: looking for out of council. That's right. And but it parties does help.
0: parties do have an advantage that way where you're just kind of looking for Potentially, know, although
1: this time there's so many independents, someone might go in there thinking, hey, hey, I'm voting for 10 independents. <laughs> I, I don't know who would do that when there's three COPE candidates on the ballot to vote for it as well. But Let's
0: say you, you, you get your COPE candidates and then you look for seven independents, seven strong independents. How about I that? have no comment. <laughs> I, I'm just looking
1: for a progressive a council majority. Progressive, there's that word. And, we'll get into uh, that. Yeah. I want to
0: talk about that.
1: Yeah, but we're definitely looking for Ann Roberts, Gene Swanson, and uh, O'Keefe on on council. That's the idea. Love it. And the ballot's going to be interesting, and I'm looking forward to getting out of the studio and finding out where I end up on that randomized ballot.
0: For sure. I'm looking forward to that, too. Um, One question that I ask all the candidates that that come onto the show, and I think it's an important question, and, and I love hearing from candidates about this, why are you running for office? That is
1: a very good question. You know, I didn't decide until I think the first week of June or the first couple of days of June. Yeah, I was seriously considering it in the winter, and some people from COPE had had asked. Um, the real reason I'm running is um, because, because I've just been living this rental housing crisis in the city and getting increasingly uh, engaged in civic politics, uh, and particularly in tenant organizing. Mm-hmm. So last year I was involved in founding the Vancouver Tenants Union, and uh, as you nice kindly mentioned in the intro I of course been at this activist thing for a couple decades I think you were um, you
0: were social justice before social justice was cool.
1: Oh yeah no I, <laughs> I came of age politically in the late 90s yeah so this was the heyday of there is no alternative. Tony Blair was was the poster boy for, for Social Democrats. So to be on the left back then was was very uncool. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been pretty uncool uh, <laughs> as a socialist, but I hope that this is the year it's changing. Um, it might be this. Yeah. This I feel like worldwide is changing. But anyway, so I was uh, I, I all that to say I'd been at it for a couple of decades. And, yeah. I, you know, I had a couple of kids and my partner and I are just kind of uh, maxed out in terms of our time um, with w- with work and everything. I was not looking for a new activist project, mm-hmm. uh, but the Tenants Union just kind of found us um, because there's so many people suffering this rental housing crisis in Vancouver. So we had moved around five different uh, places. One was an internal move. Uh, but you know, we've moved five times since our seven year old was born. So, so, so what's
0: this time, uh, this time period here, seven times, five times, so in, five times seven years. in seven years. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: I mean, one of those might've been just, just poorly thought out on our part. And part sure. of it is you need more space as you, That's a lot of moving as you though. have that second kid. Um, so a lot of insecurity. Yeah. And now we're in a place that is, uh, close to the school, um, affordable ish for what, you know, in the, compared to the rest of the Vancouver market. Um, But everyone, no matter what their profession or employment, everyone who lives in our complex, we're all feeling the same thing. Like if we lose this housing, where's next? Right. Uh, Which part of the eastern Fraser Valley are we moving to or Vancouver Island? So everyone feels like, you know, there's so many people at the brink of being pushed out of town. So we're in that category. And some friends from the downtown east side, uh, tenant organizers who have been working there for a long time, Just came over for dinner, I don't know, sometime winter 2017, Mm -hmm. and said, you know, we have this idea to start a tenants union. Uh, Why don't you get involved? Like, it'd be good to have people from different neighborhoods across the city uh, to get involved. And we couldn't really say no to that. So we got really engaged uh, in getting the tenants union off the ground. And that kind of led quite organically into Gene Swanson's independent campaign last Mm -hmm. summer. Uh, which I think exceeded all expectations, including ours, uh, in terms of the organizers and volunteers who were helping Gene out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of just showed us that there was this appetite for a more uncompromising... um, some would call it radical, uh, but more uncompromising and activist-oriented uh, approach to electoral politics. Sure, and, and that that led me to this fateful decision that I <laughs> that I finally made uh, a week or two before Cope's nomination meeting in June.
0: I would definitely say uh, an activist approach and a distinct choice. You know, where sometimes you get a lot of parties or or even candidates uh, melting in the middle. Um, Cope does provide a distinct choice, and we're going to get into your platform a little bit. Um, but let's talk about Cope. Uh, as you said, Gene um, Swanson had a very strong showing in last year's by-election, where she placed second with no corporate backing, lots of grassroots support, and a really crowded field of candidates on the left, whereas the eventual winner didn't have to deal with uh, you know, much competition on the right uh, when they won under the NPA M- banner. So now you've decided to put your name forward, Gene Swanson's on board, and Roberts is there as well for city council. What, what is it about COPE that has encouraged you to run under their banner? Why not go independent in, yeah. in this year of independence? Well,
1: it's kind of interesting. As you are recapping the by-election last year, I realized b- both the top two uh, finishers in that by-election are running under different banners this year. That's true. Hector yeah. Bremner was NPA, and now he's the billboard party, uh, <laughs> which we don't need to talk about here. Um, you know, he made that decision, and uh, that's that's a whole other story. Yeah. But Jean ran as an independent, um, but she did get the endorsement of COPE. Mm, and a okay. lot of people don't realize this was not a unanimous decision. Cope, for all its ups and downs over the years, has always remains, remained a fiercely democratic um, party. And mm-hmm. that, that, for better and worse, I mean, I obviously think better because they nominated me. Of course, uh, yeah. But, you know, last summer there was a contentious decision. There was about probably about a quarter of the general members who voted on it thought Cope should run their own candidate. So add another left-wing candidate to that field last year, which was already crowded. Right. Um, fortunately, I think the, the majority, um, or, or fortunately, in my opinion, the majority decided to back a Swanson. Um, and I think that really gave Cope a new lease on life. And it infused um, Cope, which is uh, a 50 year old party, mm-hmm. uh, with a, sort of a new generation of tenant organizers, activists who'd been involved in the, some of the issues in Chinatown, um, and also just sort of people like myself came back to, to Cope. I had actually, my membership had lapsed uh, the last few years.
0: Oh, okay. And um,
1: yeah, a lot of people, you know, because it's a long story, but after Cope won the whole city in 2002. It mm-hmm. sort of then uh, faced a series of of Rancorous internal debates yeah, about which way to go. And, Sometimes yeah. winning power is the worst thing that can happen to a political <laughs> party, especially a party of the left. You know, it throws yeah. up all these new questions and contradictions. Um, so Cope had been through some hard times. Um, I, my heart had always been o- on the left, obviously, mm-hmm. um, as everyone's heart is on the left, right? Uh, <laughs> I can't avoid the pun. I apologize. Um, my heart had always been with Cope. Um, but I had but I had left and was just doing um, media projects uh, mm. and other grassroots uh, political organizing. So I came back, and I think a whole new group of people have have become involved in the Cope campaign this year, mm-hmm. taking that approach that we tried out last year with Gene Swanson, and trying to expand it to the Park Board and School Board, and also the three of us running for City Council. and uh, we're finding it's, it's resonating. I mean, people are, they may or may not know what COPE is. Yeah, A, a lot of the older voters certainly remember us uh, as a party of the working class or a party of the underdog. Mm. Uh, a surprising number of people still remember Harry Rankin, who passed away 16 years ago now. Okay. Um, and, you know, last time he was on city council was more than 20, 25 years ago. Mm. But voters still out there who remember Harry Rankin as this... Um, you know, this cantankerous, very principled, radical socialist (laughs) on city council. Um, So, you know, I'm definitely less cantankerous. Uh, <laughs> you <laughs> seem very nice. In my <laughs> opinion. <laughs> but, uh, there's a great documentary about Harry Rankin. Actually, there's a screening tomorrow at the Rio, um, theater, but this, this will air later. So, but everyone mm. should check out the Rankin file, a documentary that covers, right. yeah, yeah. uh, covers when Harry Rankin ran for mayor in 1986. Okay. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's warts and all. It's a really great profile of who Harry Rankin was. Um, but so there is this sort of, uh, longer radical tradition that isn't just about cope. Mm-hmm. Um, but as about the left in Vancouver. You know, there used to be a big section of the, the Communist Party. One of its last strongholds was Vancouver. In Into the 1980s, right. if you were doing politics in Vancouver, you wanted to get a progressive politics, you wanted to get the endorsement of the communist party and uh, politicians that we know now from different parties like Libby Davies and Jeff Meggs. uh, Many of those folks came up through the, the youth ranks in and around the communist party. Oh, interesting. So that was a thing just a generation or a generation and a half ago. So, so there is this radical political tradition in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we're seeing now with this current housing and affordability crisis, just a new
0: openness to some of those ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, they go back a long way in the city. So that so that's my next question is mm-hmm. you've been very adamant that now is the perfect time to infuse city council with activist, uh, perhaps radical representation. So why now and, and what does that look like in terms of activist representation
1: yeah well it's to- totally self-serving of me to say it now is the moment um it's always been. i like the that moment, you're honest right? about it but <laughs> i mean it, it's always been the time for this but uh you but know, give me your it, give it me your case <laughs> at least no, 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 no. for why now no, there there's a new there's definitely a new openness um to it just because you know i liken it sometimes we are it, it does feel like we're trying to close the barn doors mm-hmm. after at least a good portion of the horses have bolted yeah like Everyone, no matter your socio- socio-economic position in Vancouver, everyone feels this crisis. You know, you oh, knock on course. a door of a of, of a four million dollar home on the west side. Not that that's what I'm. Most most <laughs> of the doors I'm knocking on are not four million dollar homes, but you know, you go to different neighborhoods, um, and the person who answers the door talks about their kids not being able to afford the city, mm-hmm. their friends who have moved out, uh, all the shops that have closed nearby. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're really feeling a hollowed out city a city where so many people have been forced to, to move away or are feeling that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Actually, no matter where you're knocking on doors, the two most common responses are kind of anxiety or anger about the housing situation Yeah. or the expression, I'm lucky. Well, I'm lucky here, Yeah. but I'm worried about everyone else. So this thing, which should be pretty basic, that you have a roof over your head, is now this thing that everyone in Vancouver feels feels so lucky about. So- We've obviously gone way too far down the road of commodifying housing, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's why the, the message that COPE is putting forward, that this market has failed, the needs of ordinary people, working people, uh, let alone poor people, and and seniors and others on fixed income. Um, I think it's just our critique is, the critique that COPE has always had of sort of leaving the housing Um, people's housing needs to market forces uh, Mm -hmm. and just leaving it up to capitalism, basically, um, that critique has now become mainstream because the situation has become so bad. Mm -hmm. Um, On another level, internationally, the idea of someone running for office uh, as a socialist and just saying it out loud is no longer a uh, sort of wacky, out-there idea. It's changing. Uh, Yeah, that's for sure. Between
0: Bernie Sanders and... uh, uh, the girl in New York, the woman in New York, I, I'm going to screw up her name. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. ocasio so It's yeah. A-o- AOC. AOC,
1: yes. yes. AOC. And <laughs> Thank Mne, you. Yeah. And, you know, she has that graphic design and amazing video producers that everyone's trying to copy now. It's, like, so good. Yeah. Um, and that, I should say, also, Gene Swanson had an incredible graphic designer. Mm-hmm. And that, that matters. That, you know, it's not just about the ideas. You do have to present them in a way that, that attracts people. Um, in Seattle, there's Shama Sawant as well. Yes. Um, while we're talking about the idea of municipal politicians of the left. Um, and even in Victoria, uh, Ben Isidt uh, is, a, is a friend of mine. He is uh, very openly a democratic socialist. He's a historian of left movements in Canada. Mm-hmm. And he's also, last last time in 2014, he was the top vote-getter in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's running again this time. So we're seeing it at different, different levels. Um, it's maybe been a trend that's a bit slower coming to Canada, um, but it's not an unusual thing for for people presenting themselves as proudly on the left to to run and win office anymore. And also it's not an unusual thing for housing activists and sort of housing movements to step into the political arena. Right. Uh, and the big example that has inspired uh, myself and COPE uh, is a situation in Barcelona where they had mm. a and, – and, you know, their economic crisis was – was worse than anything we'd suffered here uh, a few years back. So they had a situation of sort of mass evictions, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a foreclos- like the foreclosure crisis in the United States where people were being kicked out of their homes, and they had a very militant direct action movement to try to stop these evictions. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years back, they ended up uh, electing the the most prominent public figure from that anti-eviction movement uh, at a as the mayor of Barcelona. And they have this um, very grassroots... Uh, radical-minded uh, civic government in Barcelona, and they're taking uh, very important steps to deal with the housing crisis there.
0: Sure. So, so And the, so that's your model in terms of what, what you're looking for here? I think it's a model. Okay. I mean,
1: it's a model. You know, we don't have the political tradition of Catalonia. And, no, fair enough. And yeah. uh, the, the, the movements that, that they have in Spain. Um, it's a model, for yeah. sure. But, uh, you know, so is Shama Sawan, so and she's just two hours down the down the I five. Yeah. So, um, and, and what what Barcelona and Seattle and Vancouver have in common is we're sort of. I guess that we're part of the second tier of global cities. Um, but we have all mm. the problems of the first tier global cities like London, New York, uh, Paris, in terms of, and s- s- no offense to anyone in Seattle or Barcelona, <laughs> or even here who thinks we should, I, I don't know how big the first tier is, but you know. No, I think you're right. That's a fair assessment. Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of population, population size. Yeah. But we've sort of been affected by the same forces of specula of an investment capital pouring into our housing market Mm -hmm. and, uh, and just the huge displacement effects that has on on locals who are trying to, to live and survive.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to go back to this idea, and we, we've touched on it a little bit. I just called Vancouver a second-tier city. No, no I'm, you did that, no. that's, a, that's a
1: fatal blow to my campaign. <laughs> We're
0: not editing anything. We're keeping it in. Second I, tier in population. It's got to it's <laughs> be put instance. into context, yeah. a proper context. Um, must listen to the full episode. <laughs> Pay no attention to this clip that it, my political opponents s- are circulating yeah, right don't now. Don't scrub no. like 20 minutes in and be like, oh, what? 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 (laughs) Uh, I do want to get to this idea of um, you you sort of mentioned like it's slowly and and gradually becoming more acceptable to say you're on the left or even you're a democratic socialist. Um, Contrary to that, I find everyone is calling themselves a progressive. And it's it's one of those terms where I actually had Patrick Condon on the show and he was the my second guest and he made mention of this word being soft. And the more that that the more that I've I've been following this election, the more that's made sense to me, because you have every politician and candidate of every stripe using that word and, and that identity of being progressive. And suddenly it means as long as you're not overtly misogynistic, not overtly racist, not of overtly homophobic or transphobic you're progressive, which is, like, the lowest threshold. Because I would just hope every candidate, no matter where they are on the left or the right, would, you know, not be those things. It just means you're a semi-decent human being now. Yeah. Or even, you know, this idea that you put... And and I hope I don't catch flack for this, but this idea that you put out a diverse slate of ethnicities and that automatically qualifies you as progressive without even looking at policy. Um, I don't know. It has become this, like, weird buzz word uh are you distinctly identifying yourself as on the left radical and you're you're not using this word or is this a word that you still it's you right still in use? our name we're stuck with the coalition <laughs> of progressive well electors. but you've you've condensed it into cope yeah the acronym
1: that, that we're all like, really? You guys went with that acronym 50 years ago? But you know what? That, my, my line, and I borrowed this from one of our supporters, there's hope with cope. Um, that's, that's a good one. That's the pun and the rhyme I'm going with. That's a great um, one. But yeah, you know, it's funny. I thought about that. Why did they call themselves uh, progressive 50 years ago? Mm-hmm. 50 years ago, and going back into the 50s, coming out of the McCarthy era, you used the word progressive if you didn't want people to know just how left wing you were. It was like a cover, right? Like, you know, Harry Rankin was a communist supporter. Like he was very close to the Communist Party. He mm-hmm. went, he would go on international uh, trips to the to the Soviet Union and, <laughs> and things like that. It wasn't a secret, but for the party purposes, they use the word progressive. Sure. Now we've come so far. It's it's like now you use the word progressive so people don't know that you're actually right wing in terms of your yeah. rec- economic and uh, and other policies. Um, so I think yeah, there's a negative thing that has sort of become an empty signifier. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe, uh, and this I'm just coming up with this off the spot, but maybe it's not such a bad thing that people who would traditionally be um, identifying more as center or openly right-wing are now kind of using some of that progressive language because I think it reflects how far we've come in terms of anti-racist struggles. That's a great point. uh, Anti-homophobic struggles. I mean, 20, 25 years ago... um, uh, if you were advocating for gay marriage rights, mm-hmm. for example, as Sven Robinson did as uh, MP for the New Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, and there was one of the first of all, Sven Robinson was the first out politician in Canada. That's right. Yeah. But also, he was he was openly a democratic socialist. But when he stood up in the House of Commons and said we should recognize the the right to marriage for gay and lesbian people, it was considered a fringe thing. Yeah. As recently as the 1990s. And, and now yeah. that's become a thing that almost no one in the mainstream political sphere will dare speak against. Oh, so
0: 100%. And it, it's funny even to, to f- the good, all that. you know. 15 even if, years yeah. ago, mm-hmm. the, fifteen years ago, our population was split 50-50 on this issue, right? So even in yeah. 15 years, we've made a lot of progress yeah. in terms of... Uh, you know seeing this as as, as fine and, and accepting this and right? the
1: importance of, of gender equality and diversity in mm-hmm. political representation that again is not a small thing yeah you know i mean and it's still we've got a ways to go all of us right there's different uh different manifestations of it but i saw an event i think it was at the queen elizabeth theater the other night i saw that it was a discussion of planners from west coast cities and that- it was like five middle-aged guys yeah there
0: might have been one person of color or something but I think I saw that photo and I think most of them were also balding <laughs> they, they all look the same and <laughs> yeah, they, they had all, the same suit the jacket same suit. and white shirt it was like
1: <laughs> really in 2018 yeah like, pretty you brutal gotta, yeah, yeah maybe like you having a podcast of two people yeah you might not always have gender equality but totally. come on a, fanal, uh, a panel a, planned- a panel. Uh, yeah, panel. That's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, that's that's. I've been made aware of the term because I've organized a lot of panels in my day. Yeah, and it's now something we all think about. do yeah. we have some diversity on this, uh, in this discussion? And so, I th- so and these I think are big great, steps forward. Yeah. These are not small things, for sure. Um, I, I, even if it annoys us that sometimes they use the word progressive when really they have a more right wing economic agenda, it does represent. Uh, uh, what's the word, progress in, the yeah, <laughs> in our society. But it's been a hard-fought n- movement forward on these issues.
0: I think that's very well spoken and very well said. Um, and I, I agree with you. You're right. And it's good to be aware of these things. I think the frustration that you're starting to see, and unfortunately this frustration manifests in a lot of ugly ways too, is when you do have center or right parties overdoing it in terms of uh, cloaking themselves in this progressive garb, all, but that's used as a shield to push through an economic agenda, and that becomes quite frustrating for for a lot of people, especially people on the left who maybe you know had faith in in a in a centrist party. Um, I can think about our federal liberals and and Kinder Morgan being being a great example of a lot of people feeling betrayed. You know, Just, Justin Trudeau walks the walk, talks the talk in a lot of areas, but on this he let down a lot of quote unquote. Progressives, <laughs> yeah, and think
1: back to the euphoria of 2008 when Obama was first uh, exactly elected. When those politicians with that kind of image and progressive promise behind them uh, failed to deliver and even make economic conditions worse for for some marginalized communities mm-hmm. and racialized communities, um, the the uh, the cynicism uh, that and follows the in part. the wake yeah. uh, really demobilizes people mm-hmm. uh, and and often makes people give up on politics. I yeah. mean that, and you, you see it here, too. That's something you get a lot at the door. Mm-hmm. I don't trust politicians. I'm, <laughs> I'm fed up. How, how are you going to be different than all the others who said they're going to solve this, this or that crisis yeah. in our city? And... You just have to talk it through and say, I, you know, hey, I don't like politicians either. Yeah. I'm a grassroots uh, <laughs> activist. And, but it really is a conversation. Like, we're trying to create a different type of idea of what a
0: politician is. Sure. And um, I, I want to get into that. Let's get, yeah. let's get into yeah. the platform. Let's get into, obviously, the big issue, housing affordability. One of the key planks of COPE has been a rent freeze. And you've been very vocal about instituting a rent freeze. Can you tell me why it's urgently needed now? Because rents just, have been going up.
1: Yeah, either way. I mean, it's just it's it's just squeezing people. Everybody feels feels it. Like at the end of the month, you start buying less groceries or cheaper groceries, or you stop going to the corner store because you realize it's the last week of the month, mm-hmm. um, and that that has huge consequences um, for everybody. So when they say, "Hey, here's another four point five percent rent increase," um, you know, maybe maybe that quote-unquote, only works out to $1,000 a year depending on the cost of your housing. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you, families do not have an extra $1,000 in their budgets in in this city. Um, And a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck or or living on debt. Um, And a lot of people are living in buildings that – are not being taken care of mm-hmm. anyway, uh, and then that max increase comes every year, um, so it's just anger. I mean, there's nothing worse than than when your property manager, your caretaker, comes around with that rent hike uh, yeah. notice. <clears throat> That's just the feeling of powerlessness and rage uh, is real. I think everybody feels it, even if you're doing okay and mm-hmm. like can can squeeze in in that extra cost. So, And it's been going on for so many years. It's been 15 years since they kind of tweaked the, 14 years, sorry, since they tweaked the rental formula to allow 2% plus inflation.
0: So that was my next question. Where, where does this number right. come from? Where does 4.5 come from? How does right. that work?
1: Yeah, Manitoba and Ontario basically go by inflation. Okay, um, you know other places have different sort of formulas. Um, it's been it's there's been you know big fights over rent control all through BC and Vancouver's history. Um, but the BC Liberals changed it. Uh, they added the two percent and inflation uh, back in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just uh, the cumulative um, compound. Uh, result of that, you have a 40% increase in the last 14 years wow. of rental prices. Wow. And that doesn't include the fact that landlords can hike the rents, whatever they want, between tenancies. So mm. if, they, if a tenant moves out, the next tenant they'll charge whatever the market exactly. yeah. uh, can bear. So that's why uh, the tenants union always emphasizes this. We really need vacancy control, which is a form of rent control where um, the, pr- the uh, maximum increase is tied to the unit, not to the tenant. So okay. even if a tenant moves out, the landlord has to o- can only increase it 4% a year. Um, that's what we right. would have if we had vacancy control. Um, and right now what you have is a big incentive for landlords to kick tenants out or force them out. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's a renovation. Uh, and that becomes a renoviction because right. the renovation is really a pretext to push people out of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has really made the cost of rents um, a spiral. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have a lack of public investment from all levels of government in in new co-op housing non, and various forms of non-market housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you also have that a low vacancy rate. Uh, this allows landlords to uh, to squeeze everybody. So that's why the rent freeze, we came up with it. It's a temporary measure. We're not saying forever 0% increase. Sure. Um, we want to do it for... Uh, basically, review it each year, but we're saying a four-year rent freeze in Cope's platform because the municipal term is four years, okay? Um, and because we've had fifteen years of this uh, ridiculous formula that the BC Liberals created. So Where did that extra two
0: percent come from? What was the rationale behind that? I I, Cause I get couldn't
1: tell you, but I mean, they, <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a handout to uh, to the landlords, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at this point, mm-hmm. and when you get it compounding every year. Um, Yeah, there's there's not a good justification for it. I was just wondering if there was
0: like inflation makes sense um, because you're already setting it at market rates, as you said, between tenancies.
1: Part of the argument would be maintenance costs and and things like that. But there are provisions within the Residential Tenancy Act at the provincial level uh, for landlords to to uh, apply for special increases if there's like a major uh, 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 renovation or uh, maintenance that's necessary. So there are mechanisms for landlords to apply right. for rent increases rather than just making – they could be letting the building fall apart as some of the slum lords have been in this city. That's right. And yeah. they can still do that rent hike. And the other part of it is um, not only have incomes not been rising as, as fast as rents, so you've had incomes decoupling from housing – uh, prices, mm-hmm. But you also have to remember all the people on fixed incomes, um, people on disability, uh, people on social assistance, which was frozen by the BC Liberals for, I think, about a decade mm-hmm. um, and is now only going up by $100 um, a month. Um, but if you if you continue to allow rents to increase, that extra little bit that someone on social assistance is getting is basically just going to the landlord. Right. So that's uh, another reason the rent control is important. So that's why we put it out there. And someone came up with the freeze, um, rent freeze. I think New York City had had a rent freeze campaign, and they'd had rent freeze for some of the apartments in New York for a few years as well. Okay. So we didn't coin the term. No. Um, but the idea <laughs> is... Put out a demand there that will really give renters uh, a reason to get engaged and give them, um, you know, so part of it is just trying to reach that constituency that has often been forgotten in municipal politics, Mm -hmm. Um, even though renters are the the majority of people in Vancouver live in rental housing units. So the majority of the housing units our rental units, um, but we've always been left out. There's almost never been more than one or two renters on city council. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was shocked to learn this. only really realized this a few <laughs> months ago, uh, was that until the late 1960s, might have been 1970, renters could not run for office, uh, and they couldn't serve as uh, council members either. In municipal really? In municipal elections. Sorry, so they, h- sorry, they couldn't vote.
0: They couldn't and, vote?
1: And they couldn't run for office. So yeah, if you, you didn't own property... Pair.
0: If you didn't own property, you couldn't vote in the ni- until the 1960s. You had to be a ratepayer. Yeah. I was wow. stunned. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: You could vote in provincial and, and federal elections. Prov- of of <laughs> course, there were also restrictions on indigenous people. Yeah, and that's true. Chinese yeah. and South Asian until a little earlier in the 20th century. Yeah. But, you know, all these groups that had to fight for their right to vote, we don't think think that renters had to fight for the right to vote. Uh, to vote but uh, that was one of the issues that copes uh city councilor harry rankin that we've talked about yes in when the uh, the organization was formed in 1968 that was part of their platform to extend the franchise uh, municipally to to
0: renters wow it's kind
1: of kind of surreal
0: that is surreal yeah you don't because yeah. uh, that's not that long ago no it's <laughs>
1: no, 50 years ago so and you know renters still have to to fight for representation, um, but also equal treatment just in all the planning and sort of the mechanisms of the city. Mm -hmm. When we consult with neighborhoods, often that is code for we're consulting with the landowners or the property owners. It doesn't necessarily even take into consideration how many of the people in that neighborhood are renters. Mm-hmm. How are they living? Or are they at risk of displacement? So this is kind of the lens that that Cope um, and my campaign is bringing to everything. Yeah. Um, and it, people might get tired of it. They're like, "Oh, it's that O'Keefe. He's talking about renters again." <laughs> but you know, these issues have been neglected for so long. Yeah. We need to be forceful about it, and we always have to insist on this on this lens. And Who's getting hurt by these policies? And I think, like
0: you said, not just neglected today. But but they've historically been neglected. And, you know, that's a that's a fair case to bring some of these issues to the forefront, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, and hemmed off from large parts of the city, right? You yeah. You, you, you couldn't be renting in, in Shaughnessy. No, if that's right. You know, if you were in Shaughnessy, you're either a wealthy elite or you were there to, uh, to cook or clean. Right, uh, exactly. Or be a nanny, basically,
0: yeah. yeah. So when we talk about this rent freeze, um, you've obviously talked about how this is a formula that the province uh, has instituted, What's the province's role in helping the city of Vancouver institute a rent freeze? Do you need the province to do this? We don't need the province, but it
1: would be easier for the province to just do it. And we're appealing (laughs) so strongly, you know, and we know a lot of the, I mean, we know, I mean, um, people in government now Mm -hmm. are friends of mine um, and they are like minded people. I won't name them for their own sake, but uh, <laughs> you know there's some there's some very good progressive uh, people in there who know about renters' issues in Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, and they know that the BC Liberals created this this terrible formula, mm-hmm. and they know that people are hurting, um, and I think many of them want to do the right thing, but we have to push even when we have. Um, friendly or friendly er people at higher levels of government. Mm-hmm. We have to push them really hard from the municipal level and also from social movements like the like the tenants union. So it would be so easy for them to do it that they wouldn't even have to uh, convene the legislature.
0: Oh really? The okay. housing
1: minister um could simply uh pass through an order in council. So we basically have to get the cabinet to sign off on it. But yeah. the housing minister could propose it. Uh Horgan and the rest of the inner circle there, the cabinet would um would sign off on it mm-hmm. and this uh, this latest rent hike could be rescinded so that would Mm. apply for the whole province okay um but it would bring that relief we need in vancouver
0: for sure now i I do follow you on twitter and Mm -hmm. uh, i did catch a tweet of yours where you said that you've consulted with several lawyers about a plan sort of a plan b to use municipal powers to institute a a rent freeze are you able to speak on that a little more if if the province isn't cooperating what can the city do on its own
1: yeah yeah and we are definitely we're lucky to have different um social movement and pro bono lawyers that, that help us out with these questions. We're also lucky to have Ann Roberts uh, running with us because mm-hmm. she used to be on city council. Right, um, yeah. So she knows. Uh, her husband is actually uh, was a planning instructor professor out at UBC. Okay. So well. Ann is our go-to for, for technical <laughs> stuff. Um, but really, she just sends me back long bylaws to read. Um, sure. So, and these lawyers as well, they look through the, the bylaws and, and I've read through them. So bylaw 4450 uh, deals with uh, business licensing in the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And pretty much any kind of business you can imagine, um, there are specific um, schedules for how much it costs. An undertaker is268 dollars uh, a year to have your license with the city to, to be an undertaker, in case you're interested. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I came up with that example, but I was just going to say, um, yeah, <laughs> for a landlord, for a landlord, it's only71, uh, bad? A year per unit. So okay. You know, if you have unit, a, yeah. a 10 unit small apartment, a little walk up or something, you're paying $710 a year for your business license with the city. Um, we could um, just make it contingent, uh, just make the licenses renewals uh, contingent on landlords not increasing the rent. We could say if you want your license this year, um, you have to not increase your rent. And this relates wow. to the. So this mm-hmm. also relates to the Vancouver Charter, yes. which, um, you know, we often have to ask for amendments from the province. Mm-hmm. But the Vancouver Charter does have a lot of powers there, um, uh, relative uh, to other municipalities in terms of what we can do. And so what the Vancouver Charter. Uh, allows us to do is we can have different regulations in terms of licensing of business activities, Mm. as long as we don't contravene the statutes of the higher level of government at the province. So in this case, we would be doing our extra thing with the licensing to keep landlords from increasing rents. Right. So we'd have them at 0%, say, for a year. You come back, no, this year you can not increase the rent if you want your license renewed. That doesn't contravene the max of 4.5%. Now, another group, hmm. another influential group, well, we're hoping COPE is influential uh, <laughs> again in the city after October 20th. Sure. Uh, we're, we're certainly um, a factor, but we're not as powerful or influential as the B.C. Chamber of Commerce. Right. And last year, the B.C. Chamber of Commerce put out a position paper saying municipalities should have the right to regulate rents in their own cities. Um, they shouldn't Oh, re- interesting. They okay. shouldn't have to rely on the province. Yeah. But, of course, the Chamber of Commerce was interested in doing this so that landlords in the municipalities could raise it higher than the 4% right. or 4.5% that the province mandates. Yeah, But, you see, that would be a violation of the higher level of government statute mm. because they'd be above it. Um, so we like to think that our proposal here is is practical and realistic, unlike the Chamber of Commerce, which is sure. a little bit just ideological in, in putting out their proposal. Um, but, you know, these issues of jurisdiction are always... Um, not always, but they can often be used as an excuse uh, for politicians not to take the action that's necessary. Mm-hmm. and one of the things I learned from the way that Jean Swanson talks about all these issues is she always talks about policy in terms of what we need. yeah, we have to ask we have to ask for something even if it doesn't seem realistic mm-hmm. because people need it. It's based on the if we have twenty one hundred homeless people in the housing count this year, we need to build twenty one hundred homes, yeah, and it, you know, if the city um, needs more money to be able to build those homes, they have to get new mechanisms to raise money or figure out ways to raise the money. They can't just throw up their hands and say, oh, you know, we'll wait for the province or wait for the feds yeah. or we can't do anything because of these higher levels of government. And the whole history of municipal political movements has been that get things done is about either figuring out uh, that you have more powers than you think at the local level and getting creative. Right. Um, <clears throat> And uh, you know, when Cope in 2014 proposed an empty homes tax, the response of a lot of people in the other parties was, "Oh, that's not realistic. <laughs> It'd be too hard to like. What are you gonna do? Like, everyone has to like. How are you gonna track the houses that are empty? How are you gonna punish people who don't uh, uh, who don't pay their?" Uh, who don't pay the tax, mm-hmm. uh, but it turns out that you, four years later, here at the end of the, their term, Vision Vancouver has now uh, they, they appealed to the province and they've um, they've implemented the empty homes tax. Yeah. same thing with Airbnb regulations. Right, when Airbnb first sort of blew up on the scene or emerged on the scene as this phenomenon, people probably said, well, you know, that might be having some harmful effects on the rental market, but it'd be too hard to regulate, too hard to to contain. Mm-hmm. Um, but now uh, Airbnb is finally uh, regulated in the city of Vancouver. Uh, enforcement is another question. It's sure. it's not being dealt with. But so the point is, when you identify a problem, you got to you got to find a solution,
0: whether it means demanding more uh, powers from the province. Listeners, I have to apologize. Uh, we had some technical issues. Uh, so we we had about a minute or so uh, that was just Cut from the uh, from the recording, uh, but we are just going to pick it up where we left off. I do apologize. I I know I don't edit these conversations, but uh, we're just going to move forward and, and continue. It was our such an
1: incredibly eloquent <laughs> minute, from what I recall of the last things that I said. No, no. no.
0: Derek was just on fire. It was uh, you had to be there.
1: <laughs> it's going to cost me the election. Um, no.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I'm just I'm uh, totally kidding. We've been talking about rent freeze. Um, One thing I want to ask you is that, you know, is there a risk that a rent freeze would ultimately hurt Vancouver's already low vacancy rate, which is around, I've heard 0.6% or 0.9%. You know, does it provide certain disincentives for property owners to not put up their properties for rent or to do something else where maybe it it hurts renters in the end?
1: The big, I mean, the big problem, and this is always an argument against rent control. Mm -hmm. uh, So, I mean, the, the arguments to say that having a f- couple years or a few years without rent increases would sort of stop new rental housing construction projects. Um, I think are just, uh, frankly, I think they're mostly s- scaremongering from from an industry. First of all, a, a rent freeze would not apply to new buildings that are getting approved. Mm-hmm. And some of the new big rental projects uh, that have been approved, they, they can set the rate wherever they want. And as we know, it's a pretty extraordinarily high these days. Um, but the real thing we need in our... Um, municipal zoning and the real estate market, we need more condo control. Right. And we need to provide, you know, there's just, even, even without uh, rent control, uh, frankly, developers have been preferring to build condos for decades mm-hmm. uh, in terms of just the, the return on their capital investment that they can get, the speed at which the money pours in mm-hmm. um, to these safety depo- deposit boxes in the sky that have been being built for, for decades. So I'd say we need condo control. Okay. Um, it's not that rento, rental control is a problem. And we have some new tools in our toolbox now at the Vancouver level that we haven't had before, so the provincial government now allows rental-only zoning. So this is something I know we're looking at in Cope, and I've definitely heard other parties talk about, you know, how can we use the rental-only zoning um, combined with other mechanisms to build uh, affordable rental housing in in big, big numbers. So this includes non-market housing, uh, you know, truly social housing, co-op housing, uh, but also s- some element of affordable market uh, rental. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to to use our other tools at our um, disposal and this argument that oh you can't have rent control you can't give renters a break for a couple of years or you're gonna you're gonna destroy the construction market um, this is sort of putting everything on the back of tenants who are already pushed to the brink right I mean tenants can't afford um, they can't afford to live in the city I mean people are as I say totally filled with anxiety a paycheck away from from moving out or have they've already moved out and this is true um, of businesses as well mm-hmm. so small businesses. Um, yeah, I mean, just getting back to the to the crisis in the city. I don't think this argument is valid, and we're not saying this is a forever thing. It's, yeah, exactly. It's a it's a measure of relief for renters while we get these other mechanisms in place. A really, a comprehensive approach to solving the affordability crisis in the city. And yeah, ultimately we have to get the vacancy rate up. It's it's absurd to have it under under one percent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, when you're walking in uh, Fairview, is where where I live, and when I walk my kid to school past all the three four story walkups, it's like you stop in your tracks if you see an apartment building that says vacancy. Yeah. It's like all those signs. It's like, why do you even need that sign? We we know they all say no (laughs) vacancy, right? It's like a thing you notice now when there's an apartment building with a vacancy. So this is, yeah, this is not okay.
0: It's good to make that distinction between a rent freeze and a rent ceiling as well. Because often Mm -hmm. you hear critiques of a rent ceiling being applied to a rent freeze, at least what I've seen, um, which I don't think, they're not the same thing, right?
1: No, no. I mean, there have been other. There are other proposals too, uh, mm-hmm. especially certainly for the new developments. So sort of a square footage, you could put a ceiling on the rent per square foot. Because mm. uh, one concern would be if you mandate more affordable starting rents. Um, then the developers will just build smaller and smaller units. Right. When we, we do right. n- we need, uh, <laughs> you know, for working families can't live in 300 square feet. Yeah. Uh, of rental housing. So yeah, there are other definitely a lot of other considerations. Mm-hmm. But we think, in large part, the arguments against a rent freeze, um, they d- if people are being intellectually honest, they should oppose the rent control regime that's currently in place in BC. On the same grounds. Mm-hmm. But people tend to to not do that. And other parties that don't support our rent freeze that COPE is advocating for, um, a number of them this year actually are calling for a reduction in the annual increase mm. or just tying it to inflation. Right. Um, so I'd say other parties are coming closer to our position of a rent freeze. And I've heard very few people saying there should be no rent control at all. I think Hector Bremner has basically said, you know, um, we'd be better off without rent control. Uh, but that's a paraphrase. So if any of us... <laughs> If any of his billboard funders and uh Bremner supporters you might are have listening. Some anonymous uh, lawyers uh coming after you. Well uh. there you go. Maybe by the time this episode comes out, we'll know the mystery person
0: behind uh, those billboards. I, I have a good idea that we might actually. We'll see. We'll see. You never know. Um the October surprise of the Vancouver election. <laughs> um but I, I wanna stick I wanna stick to housing and I wanna stick to um uh one area of housing that i think does get overlooked and you've you've kind of just brought this up in in terms of uh bringing up hector bremner is this idea of homelessness uh obviously cope including most obviously gene swanson has been a big proponent of ending homelessness this was a prov uh, a promise that vision vancouver had had made and their target date has passed us by three years as you've said we need to build about 2100 homes ideally um and, and most realistically, these modular, these temporary modular housing homes. Um, and that's something that COPE has advocated for. So I'm curious, what's the total cost of building these homes? How do we pay for it? What's the timeline look like if we're, if we're being very serious about ending homelessness?
1: Yeah, and we need to be really serious. I mean, I remember watching the, I, I was cheering for COPE, but I was also not displeased in 2008 when the NPA. Uh, didn't come back in and and Gregor Robertson was first elected and I was watching um, on television back in the day you watch things on television and I was watching when Gregor made that promise you know and uh, the the, the, the city was elated about this new, fresh-faced mayor who was going to end homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a really serious thing to fall down on. And, you know, first it was moving the goalposts on that promise. And then after 2015, which was the deadline, um, it was just sort of never spoken of again. So when we say we're going to, we have a plan to end homelessness, like mm-hmm. we have to mean it as COPE. Yeah. Now, even in the best case scenario, we're going to be three city councillors. Um, so we have to get buy-in from other progressive partners and other city councillors, um, whatever shape this new government looks like. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at what's been done with modular housing. When there's a little bit of political will, uh, now most of that money is coming from the provincial government. They spent ju- just under $70 million. I think it was $66 million, mm-hmm. on the 600 modular homes that have now been built. Um, that's happened. The government's yeah. only been in power... Fourteen months, fifteen yeah. months, and with a little bit of political will, an outlay of some serious money, um, uh, that's that's been done. And you remember the first uh, one of the recent wave of modular housing that went in in Marpole? There was a quite a significant backlash. Um, I guess you could characterize it as an IMB backlash. It was some pretty nasty stuff being said about the people moving in there. Um, But then there were student activists actually at the high school down there at Churchill Mm -hmm. um, and uh, other student activists who stood up and said, no, we we want these people in our neighborhood. Um, We want supportive and social housing in our neighborhood, and housing is a human right. People pushed back and really, I think, won that argument. Mm -hmm. And the the other modular housing that has gone up around the city has not faced the same sort of... um, or frankly bigoted or, or um, poor bashing kind of backlash yeah so once you put a bit of money in something and have some political will you can get a lot done so what we're calling on uh, from cope is to actually not rely on the next wave of funding from the provincial government mm-hmm. um, but to actually get the money ourselves so we want to be able to institute a mansion tax okay. which by which would apply to properties over 5 million and then a slightly higher rate uh, over 10 million and it's a surtax so if you have a 4.9 mil, if you have a 4.9 million dollar house you're paying nothing extra hmm. but at a 5 million dollar house you pay on the value above 5 million a 1% tax Above $10 you pay a 2% surtax, pardon me. Um, That would generate, by our calculations, $200 million in the first year. Um, Whoa, okay. That's a lot of money. If (laughs) the first 600 (laughs) units of modular housing costs a bit less than $70 million, um, you could build 1,800 units for about $200 million, a little less than $200 million. So um, you could go a long way just with that in Mm -hmm. the first year. Um, And this stuff can be built faster and faster. It, we're not quite 3D uh, printing them yet, but uh, Gene and myself, Gene Swanson and Diana Day, and I just went to the Margaret Mitchell modular housing that's opened up in the on. Basically, they took the parking lot behind the Olympic Village SkyTrain station. Okay. Um, and they built it, and I was shocked when they were having the open house because I go by there all the time. It's pretty close to yeah. my my part of town, and I had totally missed construction. I was like, How long did this take to be built? <laughs> they built the whole thing in nine weeks wow the whole thing was up and h- in how many nine units weeks. um that one was i feel like that was a bit less like about 50 units
0: yeah that's think, still three wow. stories Wow.
1: yeah a really significant development that can be put up in in, in nine weeks now of course this is, isn't permanent yeah um that we're not sure about the, the longevity um, but it's temporary housing so mm-hmm. it's not a solution but you can turn a parking lot into 52 uh, units of social housing just like that so with the mansion tax we could get $200 million right off the bat and we have to be be honest, when we're, we're advocating these measures, part of what a mansion tax is doing is also disincentivizing uh, speculation of, in mansions, mm-hmm. essentially, right? Um, so it's possible that the revenue over time would decline. Um, I mean, we kind of mm. hope it would. It's not quite like the empty home stacks right. where you want to you wanna use it to, to stop people from doing it. But we do hope the market, especially at the high end, and uh, anywhere there's speculation, we do want that to cool off. So, these taxes have a dual purpose. You're trying to capture some of that value mm-hmm. um, that otherwise is just going to people who don't need it at all. Um, but you're also trying to cool the market in general to bring land value uh, costs down. But the mansion tax would bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in the first four years. And the idea, that the reason the mansion tax is different than a big reason is different than the thing that is currently called the school tax. Mm-hmm. It's not terribly good branding. No, not a good, good name for it's it. It's not yeah. good branding, right, because it's basically going into general revenue. Yeah. Um, but it's going into the province. So what we're saying is, no, we want those taxes on the expensive properties in Vancouver, that surtax, to go to the city mm. so that it can go into the the city's uh, capacity to actually build the housing ourselves.
0: Right. Uh, the uh, When you're implementing this mansion tax or if, if when you're going ahead with it, Do you need the province for this as well, or is this something the city can do on its own? This is one where we
1: need an amendment to the charter to allow us to levy a a progressive property tax at the city level, Mm -hmm. because your property taxes are... Currently, it's calculated by the mill rate um, and the city budget, and this is a surtax um, that we want to be able to to capture at the municipal level. Okay. So we do need an amendment to the provincial charter, um, but I've noticed um, I think it was is one city has recently come out with a with a similar proposal. And actually, pardon me, not to it, and they they had a similar surtax proposal uh, last year as well. Oh, they did. Okay. Um, so this is not this is not just like. Um, cope's idea and and in general the idea of wealth taxes which a progressive property tax is one form of a wealth tax Mm -hmm. um those that idea is picking up around the world yeah uh, in this era of uh just sort of blatant uh, inequality that some people have called it a new gilded age Mm -hmm. um where you know once once you're part of the property class and the wealthy class you just by the the beauty of compound interest and the workings of the the capitalist system, your wealth is accumulating, um, uh, so much. So there's, there's a lot of wealth taxes we don't have in Canada. Yeah. We don't have meaningful inheritance taxes like other jurisdictions have. Um, but what we're, we're talking about is a surtax on people with $5 million and $10 million homes. Um, with, of course, ways for there will be some seniors or someone on a fixed income who wants to stay in their $5 million home after their kids move out. Mm-hmm. They, they will be able to defer their taxes. Right. Um, exactly. You know, and it means a, a slightly less that, that their children will inherit or something. But mm-hmm. it, But it's not... It's not forcing anyone out of their homes. Out homes, of their it's, homes yeah. It's, and I think the case for it is very strong when you say to people, look, this extra surtax is going to be kept in the city uh, to build different forms of housing that the market just won't deliver and can't deliver mm-hmm. uh, right now with,
0: with the high cost of land. Let's And let's get into that. One more question that I have about this idea of social housing and non-market housing. Um, one of the things I read in, in COPE's platform was how the, the current municipal government has failed on the social housing front. Uh, one thing that really caught my eye was that the COPE was clear that even the definition of social housing is broken. What, how, what do you mean by that? Or what does COPE mean by that when they say the definition is broken?
1: Yeah, well, the definition yeah. is broken. Uh, the term social housing and affordable housing have both become been applied in very Orwellian ways by this uh, under Vision Vancouver, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and Part of it, um, it was justified in the sense of incentivizing construction of market rental housing. Um, Essentially, anything that was market rental um, came to be defined as affordable um, in sort of the Hmm. the way it was was talked about. Sometimes there would be, um, rather than than having rental-only rules or banning condo construction, uh, developers were offered carrots of tax breaks and new definitely, you know, like basically, uh, if you build affordable housing, quote unquote, yeah. you get a tax break or you pay less CACs or less development levies. Um, but in exchange, it's rental. Um, but the thing is, the there there was no affordable uh, housing is supposed to be tied to the median income in a city. Yeah. And it's supposed to be tied to this notion that people don't spend more than 30 percent uh of their net income. I mean, to me that's not even a great definition because thirty <laughs> percent of your net income can still be a lot. Yeah. If you have two partners working and you have childcare costs. Yeah. Just saying. I mean, you know <laughs> our net income is a lot different than our gross income sure. when people have childcare costs and everything else. But that's the working definition across Canada right now. Um and social housing as well is supposed to serve um uh, people on fixed incomes. It's mm-hmm. supposed to serve people who are who are homeless or just have the um, welfare pension rate ability to pay. So when people in the downtown east side and other uh, of the working class and poor neighborhoods of Vancouver talk about social housing, they're talking about welfare and pension rate. Uh, units. Now, we should be fair. So, so these definitions have been really used and abused. The other thing that Vision Vancouver, uh, that has happened under Vision Vancouver, is um, developers um, would essentially, they would, uh, you know, they would get approval for a building, say, that had a certain percentage of social housing units. But then uh, when the city did the numbers, they would count all the units in the building as social housing. Uh, Rather than just the social housing units, this would be a social. It would become. Why would
0: they count all the units, though? It would become
1: a social housing development. Oh, okay. um, You know, it was sort of sort of fudging the, the numbers and, and playing with the definitions. So this has created a lot of cynicism with people and just mm-hmm. a lot of anger because people see new housing coming on the market um, or even co-ops mm-hmm. that are advertised as affordable. And then you look at the starting rates and they're up there, upwards of 2000 sometimes upwards of three and $4,000 uh, a month units being d- described and, in this but, way. But they're... They fall under that definition of
0: social housing or affordable housing.
1: Exactly. Now we should take a. I should ha- insert a caveat here to, sure. to be fair-minded and and fair to to Vision Vancouver. They they were existing for most of their time in office here with the BC Liberals, who did mm. very little to fund social housing. And also with the Stephen Harper Conservatives, um, and just generally with a federal government that had abandoned um, funding for social housing, for mm-hmm. cooperative housing. So, And this goes back, and it's not just a conservative thing at the federal level. It goes back to the, the 80s, and, and particularly the early 90s under Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Martin was the finance minister when a lot of transfer payments and federal program funding w- were cut, um, including uh, funding for social housing. Um, so a lot of these problems are bigger than the city level yeah and you know uh, as as critical as I have been of, of vision Vancouver, we should acknowledge that. I think they were wrong to sort of line up with developers and put their faith in in sort of market uh, development around the city. And, you know, yeah, my, my criticisms are, are more than on the record uh, of them, but they course, did yeah. exist in this political uh, dynamic that was very, very negative in terms of getting money to the city um, for the housing that we need. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's why in this year's COPE program, we're really saying, we need the. We need to take charge of it at the city level. We need to increase our capacity to build the housing ourselves.
0: Right. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to move away from housing, and and I want to talk about something that we've touched on as well: ending corporate influence in city hall, uh, a key plank in in Cope's platform. Uh, you've specific, or not you specifically, but Cope specifically uh, has has targeted or uh, highlighted real estate campaign contributions. Do you feel that this election is still being influenced by big business after these uh, campaign finance reforms that we've had uh, from the province? And what about organized labor and unions? Do you feel that they're also influencing the election? Because in the Glacier Media debate on September 17th, mayoral candidate Hector Bremner in A hilariously defensive position Mm. was very critical of the Vancouver and District Labor Council in terms of third party involvement in the civic election. So I just want to get your thoughts on that and and what your plan is to end corporate influence. and, And should we also be concerned about other organizations as well?
1: Yeah, well, I'm really upset that the because I was endorsed by the Vancouver and District Labor Council. I'm really upset that somebody didn't put up a billboard with my (laughs) high-resolution photos uh, from my website. That they just found on Uh, the internet? Yeah. I mean, maybe my photos just aren't high-res enough or I'm not handsome enough, uh, but I just kept looking for the billboards um, from my friends at Big Labor. Uh, No, that's totally ironic. Um, You know, I think it's good, the the legislation that was brought in um, that bans contributions from from any organization, whether corporate or union. I think that is healthy. I think mm-hmm. it should be individual donations. I actually think the limit should be less than what it is. Really? Um, it's $1,200. Um, that's still, you know, th- I'm looking at who contributes to the COPE campaign um, and who my supporters are and what people like myself are able to contribute to any political campaign, $1,200 is still a lot lot. of money. And, you know, the parties like the NPA and the other establishment parties have a lot more people who can contribute the max Mm -hmm. uh, of $1,200. So it's not nothing. And also they left these big loopholes around third-party spending. Mm -hmm. And pre-election third-party spending does not need to be uh, disclosed uh, at all, which Mm -hmm. is uh, just a bizarre thing to to leave out of the legislation. So we hope and trust that that will be fixed for the next municipal elections. The other thing is that the big parties have had all these years of being able to have offices and extensive staffing and really professional, um, highly paid communication consultants. And, you know, that advantage uh, only disappeared in this election period. You know, they've had all this this time. So we're definitely still... um, I think this election will be the first one um, on a relatively even playing field in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, to give an example, in 2014, uh, Vision spent over three million dollars. I think Cope was like a hundred hundred thousand bucks or Oof. or something. Yeah. And so this year, we're we're all going to be on a relatively even playing field. But there's still big um, disparities in in terms of power. Um, but I can say it's like it's really it's really energizing to see that the people donating $10 and $50. And that's when we knew we were onto something last summer with Gene Swanson's independent campaign, mm-hmm. just the sheer number of small donations that were coming in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I was helping on communications with, uh, Swanson's campaign last year, but, but my partner made the mistake of agreeing to be the financial agent. <laughs> and, you know, I mentioned two kids and a busy schedule and then uh, my and a lot of small like, transactions, but a big volume of them. And right? as a yeah. financial agent, you got to be on that stuff like every day. Yeah. So we were watching the donations come in, come in every day. But it, it, as much work as it was for her, <laughs> um, being the financial agent, it was really energizing and really gave a sense that you know politics can be something that is just a battle of ideas. Yeah. It's not a battle of who has more money or who has the deep-pocketed friends. Sure. Um, and ultimately, at Cope. Um, and on the left, we, we believe and we think it's true that there are just more of us than there are of them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Jeremy Corbyn's s- slogan that he got from Shelley's poem is, for the many, uh, not the few. Yeah. You know, and, and we really are um, the majority. And for too long, our politics has been dominated um, by, by s- small groups and, yes, uh, disproportionately from the real estate related industries, mm-hmm. um, pouring money uh, into these parties and also just um, in the halls of City Hall, that's who's there. Yeah, you know that that's who's uh, getting getting the access. So it's not just about getting the money out of politics, but it's also about opening opening up City Hall to ordinary citizens and and working people.
0: What are some and- of the ideas you have aside from? Um, I mean, again, like we said, li- maybe limiting third party advertising or. or- increasing that window where they have to disclose who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other ideas that the COPE has to, to end the corporate influence or let's say a uh, powerful influence in city hall? Oh, I mean,
1: we got to, I mean, another thing is just electoral reform mm-hmm. at, the, at the civic level. Um, like trying to cover the whole city with, with 10, You know, you're running for ten spots, but you have to cover the whole city. Right. Um, That in itself gives an advantage to to the wealthier parts of the city, the wealthy residents that tend to turn out in higher numbers. Right. So I I would say electoral reform is a big thing we still have to see happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, I would like to see more than ten city councilors. This is maybe, maybe I I think it is related because um, when you only have when you only have ten, ordinary people don't feel represented at all. Mm-hmm. You kind of just gravitate to whoever returns your email about an issue, and you know I know for myself like the again on the record as a critic of Vision on the <laughs> overall yeah but you know Andrea Reimer is someone who who worked incredibly hard who advocated on uh, indigenous uh, issues environmental issues so everyone who did work on those issues would end up just contacting Andrea mm. um, and basically relying on having a hardworking city councilor yeah. Um, you know, that that does not guarantee representation to most people and most interests in this city. Sure. So I would like to see at least 16 city councillors, maybe mm. 18. And the Vancouver Charter allows us to add councillors oh, okay. at any time. Cool. And also to give some resources so that, I don't know if each councillor should have a staff person or, or what it should be, but, but some ability to engage more with citizens. Mm-hmm. Um and this is not necessarily this. These the thing about adding city councilors is not in Cope's platform. Okay, this is a no, pet a pet is, issue. Uh, thank you for clarifying but I, that. But I yeah. think it is a way of uh, expanding democracy. And anytime you expand democracy and citizen engagement, yeah, you diminish the sort of backroom power of uh, the traditional power brokers in the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to see like the city hall chamber itself is very small. Um, <laughs> it, maybe we should take city council meetings on the road. To, to neighborhoods that are not traditionally represented or heard. That's hurt. a great idea. Um, you know, how many times can someone from Champlain H- Heights or Fraser View? go to city hall for a public hearing Yeah, when they don't know when they're going to speak or, you know, they might have to stay till one in the morning at a public hearing, but their kid has hockey practice at 630 yeah, and, and they transit, might not even go back to their part of town at that hour. So maybe once a year we should go to the different corners of the city that tend to be underrepresented mm-hmm. um, and have a city council meeting have yeah. a town hall meeting but make it an actual city council meeting in a community center or a school gym yeah, um, in it. different parts of the city. So I think there are like more creative ways. I also think in that in addition to you know we always the money is a big thing. Yeah. but there's a lot of other yeah. things we can do with uh, our municipal government.
0: For sure. And I almost think that um, you know we should make being a city council person a full-time job. Like it's sort of seen as this like part-time work and there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who sit on council who have you know a day job or whatever and then they they're also a city council person um and whether that means you know increasing the salary i you know it, as long as it's someone that's dedicated in a full-time job i i Don't think most people would have a problem with that, but I think more people would be sort of suspicious about someone who's like juggling this side gig, (laughs) this eighty-five thousand dollar a year. Your side gig is like (laughs)
1: designing marketing campaigns for developers. Uh (laughs) yeah, we need no, we need tougher rules on that too. I mean, that's another thing. Um I agree with you about like it should be and I consider it a more than full time job Mm -hmm. that I'm applying for. Yeah. Like, and that's how uh, that's how I'm trying to treat the campaign. I mean, obviously, if we have a lot of other commitments um, in life. But, um, yeah, it should definitely be something that is uh, paid well enough and have some benefits so people can treat it as a full-time job. Mm-hmm. But it should not be uh, a gateway to a um, uh, a career. I don't agree with the right. idea of a career politician. Right. And it should not be a gateway to a career in the corporate sector mm-hmm. um, or a, a you know, a a cushy position uh, on the exit. So I think some of the mayoral candidates have brought in some, some decent proposal proposals that point us in the right direction, like Mm -hmm. a cooling off period, um, for people working as political staff or as elected representatives, Mm -hmm. but I would go much stronger. Like you, you shouldn't be able to go and work for a developer for at least five years. Mm. Um, if you're an elected official or a political staff, Mm. um, let alone a a planner or or things like that, like, um, there has to be more than a cooling off period. There has to be a freeze, maybe. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, we need to freeze free- all around. We need to freeze that revolving door. It's um, and we also have to pay our city staff well enough so that they can't be be plucked off by by the corporate exactly. sector. So I, yeah. you know, I'm not. I'm not one for um belt tightening and and all that by the people who who run the city mm-hmm. um yeah, and it definitely shouldn't be seen as a thing you're like, oh, I'm moonlighting as a city councilor, yeah, but uh you know I'm really a professor here or a
0: consultant here it's which um, happens and and that's yeah. how it's it's treated right it's that's no secret,
1: yeah yeah no it's um it's a it's a big problem because mm-hmm. how do you get uh and people get used to just not getting responses um, from city councilors, yeah. uh, or you get a like, you know, curt thing on the <laughs> uh, on the typed by thumb, right? Uh, yeah. Saying can't deal with this now or talk to this person. Yeah, so yeah. we need to have city councilors uh, well resourced enough um, that they have to engage with citizens, and also and also citizens should know exactly who you're engaging with. Mm-hmm. Like I plan to publish my calendar every week or at least every month, whatever's. Feasible. Oh, um, cool! Like, yeah. who did I meet with? Yeah. Um. Oh, Derek. He he likes the tenants. You know. Yeah. He should. I should say when I meet with the Vancouver Tenants Union. Yeah. Once I'm elected. I shouldn't just be uh, meeting with them every day and you don't hear about it. You should know who I'm meeting with. And if you see, oh, he's not meeting with the the following groups, um, you know, uh, it should be transparent so that you can tell me as an elected official about it. Or you can tell uh, your fellow citizens, hey, look, he's just for this group. He's Mm -hmm. not talking to these people. And as it is now, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, what conversations go on outside of City Hall? I think that's a that's a problem. So there's a lot of things we can do as. Uh, electeds as well, to be more transparent. And the parties themselves should institute measures so that politicians don't get too comfortable. Sure. Uh, I'm personally in favor of internal term limits. So this is, again, just an idea that hasn't been approved by COPE's members. <laughs> but as someone running for COPE this time, I think I shouldn't be able to do it more than one or two more times in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if, that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. You know, go, go back to being an activist and go back to, to, <laughs> to helping other people run for yeah. office. Um, don't well, get too comfortable. because. Well, I pre- appreciate you sharing yeah.
0: both, you know, COPE's platform and your personal opinions because oftentimes yeah. when you do talk to candidates, you get a lot of like just the party line. So it's very cool that you're able to to share what you think I as well. I do try to put the asterisks on it <laughs> if, if it's my own proposal
1: because, yeah, there's a process within COPE and we're very proud of our sure. me- membership driven uh, policy.
0: Yeah. We just have a few more. We have a few more yeah. minutes and I just want to rifle through mm-hmm. uh, a, a few quick questions. Um when we're looking at the mayoral race, uh, one city, another progressive party, has recently come out in support of Kennedy Stewart. Do you personally or does COPE support any one candidate in this mayoral race? Or will you maybe announce it later?
1: Well, that's a perfect segue because our members had a meeting at the end of August. Yeah, And there was discussion. Um, Patrick Condon, who you had on the show, a yes. uh, very eloquent, very accomplished academic at, at UBC, uh and, and had a lot of great ideas about non-market housing. He was going to run for Cope or wanted to seek the nomination. Mm-hmm. He unfortunately uh, had a had a stroke, and yeah. and, um, and it was great. Actually, he came to the membership meeting where we discussed oh, this in August. It yeah. was it was really great to see him, and really a nice gesture on his part to 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 come out, even though he's uh, anyway he's on the mend, and it's yeah, gra- it's great recovering. to see right yeah um, it's great to see. But we decided, you know, without Patrick running, we would not run a mayoral candidate. Okay, but we also did not pass any motion that would empower us as city council candidates uh, to go and just uh, have a beer with Kennedy or Shauna and then say, okay. hey, yeah, copes, copes with them. So our focus is on the issues. Um, our focus is on pushing all of the candidates uh, closer to our issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's those people on the left side of the spectrum mm-hmm. that are closer to what we're saying. Um, but COPE's approach is to push our platform, and I think you'll see that uh, when myself and Gene, uh, hopefully, and Anne as well, uh, are in there on city council, and I've said this to Kennedy. It's like, yeah, we're going to keep pushing you during the campaign, Yeah. Um, but also, you know, uh, I think you're going to need our support on council to get some of the things you want through. Uh, but also, if you're not doing what we like, we're going to let you hear about it, and we're going to tell the public um, our, our criticisms, so... Cool. Hope has always been... Um there's a long tradition of, of COPE city councillors pushing uh, mayors to to be more progressive sure. or more left, uh, yeah. you know. Not progressive. Not, <laughs> not just progressive. Not yeah. just progressive. Quote, <laughs> we unquote, have to get rid of that tofu word. I'm done with that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's find a new one. Well, I am using the word socialist. Yeah, and I, there you go. And I believe it is no longer electoral kryptonite, but no, I uh, think so. it'll be up to the voters in Vancouver if they're ready for a socialist on, on October 20th.
0: Sure. In a minute or less, last real question, mm-hmm. what is this election ultimately about? There was a headline in the
1: Thai that said it would be a referendum on unchecked capitalism, or some something close to that. I think it'll be a referendum on leaving it to market forces and leaving it to sort of the trickle down from the greed uh, of the rich and and powerful for the rest of us to find housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if it is a referendum on that, it's going to be a resounding no. Uh, <laughs> but Cope—it's certainly not a yes. Uh, but and you know, but Cope does provide uh, not just a rejection of the. The status quo and the system as it has been. Mm-hmm. We are providing some some really serious ideas here. They're they're costed out. Uh, we have numbers attached to them. We're going to be issuing a, a big housing report uh, early October at the latest. Um, spelling out our ideas and sort of drilling down on on the policy details so this is uh this is a debate that's long overdue mm-hmm. I mean it's the only topic of conversation in this city right yeah it is the mess uh, that the affordability crisis has left so this is your chance t- chance to weigh in I mean don't miss this election everyone's saying it's going to be a low voter turnout uh, it we cannot afford for another we literally cannot afford yeah. another low voter turnout uh, I would love to see at at least over 50%. Uh, maybe closer to 60% voter turnout. That would be the highest we've had in a generation, and I think the situation demands it. So you don't just have to vote for COPE. I hope you support vote for myself, Gene <laughs> Swanson, and Ann Roberts, uh, but you got to go vote this time. Okay. you you, you got you to gotta, you gotta weigh in on this referendum against the status quo because it's really broken, uh, and it's hurt a lot of people and continues to hurt a lot of people in our city. Yeah, a great plea and a, and a great pitch, I think. Um, that was too much. Sorry, I got that's okay. two pa- Politiciany with that "vote for me" thing that's, at the end. That's okay. That's, that's okay.
0: I think you did. You think it did great. And if go people, and volunteer
1: with whatever campaign you're supporting. It's well, not if just people about want voting, to volunteer with engaged. Cope, if yeah. people
0: want to volunteer with Cope or find out more about Cope, how do they? Where do they find you? What do they do? Yeah, it's
1: votecope2018.ca or come by the, the campaign office any time of day or early morning hours. Like People are there uh, working really, really hard. We have incredible volunteers and staff at 532 East Broadway okay, uh, between Main Street and Fraser, right on the number nine line, not far from the B line. So, um, yeah, come by the campaign office, contact the, the campaign. There's We're a creative campaign. So we love artists with ideas um, uh, of, uh, we love, um, yeah, there's no idea too out there uh, to, to pitch to this campaign. Because you really, we have to, we have to. Um, That's an open call, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I love it. We smashed a piñata. What I'm saying is at our last press conference, we actually smashed a piñata yeah. representing the rent increase. Perfect. And I mean, it smashed so perfectly the (laughs) candy went flying just as the reporters snapped their photos um so yeah uh, when i first heard about the pinata as a very you know buttoned down candidate i was like uh guys sure we should be like swinging a baseball bat at something at our press conference (laughs) and the volunteers were so enthusiastic about it and jean swanson herself swung took the first swings at the pinata yeah and then we had a tenant who was from the building facing uh Potential displacement um, that we were having. This press conference in front of a a tenant just showed up at the last minute to to smash the pinata. So that's the kind of campaign we're running. We're trying to smash the rent hikes. Perfect. And uh, trying to be creative while we're while we're fighting for the city. Yeah.
0: I love it. Well, I appreciate your time. I apologize for the technical difficulty that we had. I think, I, th- I think it'll still come out really nice. Um, but it was a pleasure. I'm, I'm a p- stunned that you're,
1: you've been, you haven't been you have been editing, because I've listened to a lot of the other no, episodes. No, I haven't. Yeah, it, They've been really great Completely conversations. Unedited. And there's a real public service that you're doing, um, hosting these podcasts. And I'm not just saying that because I got to be on the show. <laughs> I've learned a lot from listening to the other candidates. So thank you for doing
0: that. Thank you very much. That means a lot coming from you. I know you've been involved with independent media as well. Um, So I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you very much. Derek, I think you, Gene, and Anne bring a distinct voice to this election, which I hope is considered by voters as they cast their ballots in an election where a lot of the people are saying a lot of the same things, except you guys have a very distinct voice. We're the only ones smashing (laughs) pinions. No one can deny that one. I appreciate your time and thank you for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, he's running for city council with a political revolution on his mind. He's Derek O'Keefe, and I'm Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.